Hello and welcome to Pick Yourself, the podcast that helps you build and grow your electronic music career. You will learn the strategies, mindset, tactics and tools that you can implement today to break through tomorrow. My name is Philip. Now let's get right into today's episode. Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Pick Yourself podcast. I'm super stoked to have you here with me and I'm even more stoked that I have a guest in this episode, a special guest. He's called Christopher Jarman, a very good friend of mine here in Berlin. His artist name is Kamikaze Space Program. Some of you might still be familiar with his old Elias, which was Raiden back in his drum and bass days. And he's one of the most interesting characters of today's electronic music scene, in my opinion. And the reason why I wanted to bring him on the show is because he is a great example for establishing a long-term career by delivering meaningful value to his audience again and again and again. And we will talk a lot about the topic of creative reinvention, because this is something that Chris has also done over the course of his career, and it's just incredible, like every single album, every single release and also every single project that he takes on has a signature stamp, but still at the same time is something new, something that people probably hadn't expected before. And this is also true for his latest release, which is out on Osiris Music. It's called Dead Skin Cells. And this album is just a beast. I mean, first of all, doing an album these days is quite a daunting task, like in general, but especially in days where people are only listening to singles and EPs. But also speaking about the creative side of things, I believe that putting out an album is something very hard, very difficult. And Chris has managed to achieve this by putting out a cohesive body of work in this album that carries his signature sound in a way, but at the same time, it is still something fresh, it is something unique, it doesn't sound like he's repeating himself, and that is something super hard to achieve. Since Chris and I tend to have very long conversations, this also happened uh, in our interview, this is the reason why I'm splitting this up into two different episodes. So this is the first one, and we're focusing more on the background story of Chris and how did he end up being an artist. Also, how did he go from one Elias in one genre to a different one? How did he reinvent himself? And the next episode, which is going to be released next week, is focusing on a different aspect. It's more about the current situation, his album Dead Skin Cells and the creative process behind that, but also things like how do you manage to only work with good people in the industry and how do you avoid the common traps and pitfalls? And how do you end up releasing on labels that actually matter for your type of music? And also, what does it mean to have very long established relationships with great people in the music industry? And how does that develop and how does that influence your future success? Okay, so now that you have some context, I think it's time to dive right into the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Here is my conversation with Christopher Jarman, aka Kamikaze Space Program.
Chris, my mate, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You're actually the very first person I interview. I don't know if you're going to be the first person that's also showing up as an interview guest because the order might probably end up differently. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, thanks for taking the time. It's, it's actually nice to chat with somebody who I'm personally affiliated with, who is a good friend here in Berlin and actually one of the yeah, music people I really got to know a bit better here in the city and helped me feel more comfortable in that new space. So thanks for that. Thanks for no, being a good mate. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. Um, yeah, when you said you were going to be doing a podcast, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I, in the, back, in the back of my head, I was like, I gotta get Chris on the podcast because every time we see each other, we chat endlessly about super interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. What is it you called me earlier? A lab rat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, my, you're my lab rat. For exactly. the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, what's super interesting for our guests is how did you even end up here in Berlin being the yeah, prolific producer that you are nowadays? How did that come about? How did that happen? Oh, that is a long road because um, I was living in many places before I arrived here. I mean, uh, where, should, where do I even begin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably um, somewhere around when you discovered the whole electronic music thing. Like, um, So, yeah, I was playing in... Um, well, when I first was into electronic music, it would have been at school. It was around sort of 1990, and um, the whole rave acid house scene was going on. And obviously I was just a little bit too young. I was about two years too young to actually engage in that scene. So all, all of the, like, you know, my friend's older brothers were going to the raves, and uh, they'd always come back, you know, always play the cassette tapes of these, of these raves. And I'd never heard music like this before. I didn't even know what a DJ did. I used to think that the turntables was actually like an instrument creating the sounds. And I remember being really drawn to anything that had like what, what we called at the time the Belgian, the Belgium Hoover, we used to call it, which was like the, or what people call mentasms nowadays, you know, like ah. Joey Beltram, mentasm, dominator, those kind of like Hoover bass sounds were just completely alien to me. And then, uh, so I was doing a paper round and I was always buying cassette tapes from the local record shop. I'd do a paper round, take all my paper round money and ride, I think it was like eight miles, which was for me like, you know, be like going to Australia <laughs> to me nowadays. It was a long, to me, that was a long way. Um, and I'd spend all my paper round money on cassette tapes, on these, on these rave cassette tapes. Um, yeah. And, um, and then the whole kind of like ragga jungle thing happened. And I've got to admit, I wasn't really into that. It was a little bit too happy for me. I was always more into sort of like more darker, mysterious, uh, kind of deeper music. Uh, so I got into like bands. Uh, I was into the whole kind of, and that was around the time the grunge thing was happening. So I got really heavily into bands. Uh, got, you know, uh, learned bass guitar. But then Jungle started to go really dark around sort of like late 90s, sort of I'd say 97, 98. And uh, that gripped, gripped me. It's like all those old rave sounds were getting used again, but they were being done in this super sophisticated kind of way. Uh, and that was it. You know, I, I was um, I was doing a music course at the time and I was really stupid and didn't take it seriously enough. You know, I was young, I was slacking off and I basically got kicked off the course. What kind of age are we talking about? Uh, so at this point I was about 18. So we're talking about 96, or was it 98? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of think, yeah, but it's about, you know, that sort of like 20, you know, 18 to 20. Um, and I had to go and get a job because I was kicked off the music course and I had to go and work. First, I built fire detectors, uh, soldering fire detectors. And then a job came up making weapons for, Mar uh, for Marconi, making weapons for the his weapon guidance systems mm -hmm. for PSG missiles. 
and uh, I hated it. You know, that was meant to be an upgrade from the job that I had before. And I was, was around all these sort of people who are kind of like my age now, just thinking, is this where I want to be? Is this, is this how I see my life? All they do is work all week in this boring job, eight hours a day, and then they blow all their money at the pub at the weekend, and then they go back on Monday, and they just do that on loop. And, uh, and yeah, it doesn't sound like fun. Nah, you know, they were quite into it. They didn't know anything else. And I would just sit in work listening uh, to music on my headphones. Um, you know, and these albums formed everything that kind of inspire me today. And because I had so much time to think, because basically all I was doing was soldering components into PCB boards. That was the job. You know, each board take about three minutes and it's just that every day. The same board, eight hours, five days a week three minutes, one board, move on, you know. So all you, the only thing to say to you is to listen to music and I hatched this plan. I'm going to invest, I'm going to save up all my money and I'm going to buy a computer so I can record songs. Um, this was around the time that computers were starting to get a little bit capable of handling audio. You could kind of do a basic audio in the computers. You didn't have any plugins yet. VST mm -hmm. hadn't come out. Um, so I spent about know, six, seven months saving up to buy a computer and that's all I could afford. And sure enough, right at the moment, I got fired because I just was getting so depressed in this job. And I was generally depressed. It was, mm -hmm. I just thought, this is my life now and this is all I've got. And I had this weird daydream that I was going to be doing music, is going to be successful at this. Uh, but never really believing it. It was just a daydream that got me through the day. So I got fired from the job. Um, you know, I had to move back to my parents' house, which was quite, you know, not, wasn't that cool. Um, and I just spent that time learning to produce music inside of a computer. I didn't really know what style of music I wanted to do, but also at the time MTV was uh, playing and uh, was playing some incredible music. You know, I was hearing like LFO, LFO. I was hearing uh, Papua New Guinea, The Future Sound of London, uh, Aphex Twin videos on my rotation, Orteca, you know, and this was like blowing my mind. Very difficult music to make, especially at that time without equipment. But somehow I managed to sort of put some gear, to, you know, I managed to put some songs together. And in this six-month incubation period of when I was staying back at my parents' place, I just wrote loads of music. It wasn't very good, but that was a f was something. And I did that goal of um, being a music producer and actually making a living out of music. Did that seem like an like a realistic thing, like something that was actually attainable? No, it didn't, to be honest with you. It was a daydream. It was something, it was a daydream to get me through the day. It was just like a fantasy. It was a pure fantasy. But I was living out the fantasy. You know, I was doing everything that I was should have been doing, and I was doing it all right. I didn't know it at the time. But it was just more like pretending. But in fact, I was actually doing something positive. I just didn't know it at the time. Mm. Um, you know, fast forward like a year, my music was just getting better and better. And all of a sudden, like the local music scene was just like, whoa, this, this, this kid's got something. Like, and I started to get some gigs. And then I basically, I was unemployed. Um, and the, the job centre ran this course up in London called Access for Music. And um, I had to travel up to London all the time. And as a part of the course, you had to get a work experience placement at a local studio, effectively work for free. So I did that, uh, managed to get hold of a work experience placement. And it, ironically enough, the studio that I worked at was full of a lot of my heroes, um, oh. who it, it actually incidentally weren't that friendly when I got there. They actually treated me like, you know, they used to use the words off key, like I don't listen to him, he's off key, <laughs> which fast forward became the name of my record label. And that's where the name came from. And um, in your face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, um, but then one day, one one of the I won't say his name, but one of the artists 
um, very, very big artist at the time, was in the tea room uh, doing a session at the studio. And I'd pretty much kind of done the work experience. It was all right. I didn't really fit in. And I'd moved on. And really, I thought it was all over. It's been two years now since I quit, you know, since I was fired from my job. I was about to try and go back to straight life because I was sick of living on as unemployed. And he, this track I made, he saw a CD of mine, sorry, mm-hmm. and he put the CD on in the tea room. In the tea room, there was this ghetto blaster that everyone used to test their tracks out on. And he played through the tracks and suddenly one track jumped out at him and he freaked out. And he phoned me at 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning going, I've just heard this track. I need to sign you right now. Wow. And uh, and sure enough, he signed me to his small label, which was just beginning. So it wasn't the biggest label. It was like, you know, like when an established artist starts a label for new up-and-coming producers. Mm-hmm. It was that kind of vibe. But then my tunes started to really take. And he said to me, um, uh, the next track you make, I'm going to send to this big label. Now, this big label was my favourite label. And I went to every single label night that they did up in London at a club called The End, mm-hmm. uh, The End Nightclub incredible venue it's it's it was like the um, people always talk about the Burkine venue today yeah well this was the Burkine of its of its era oh wow this was the place where everybody went people from all over the world went there i'd even argue that the sound system was a lot better than the one that they have at um the Burkine. it was this this sound system was like a like a how can i explain like a roller coaster i had friends go to that night they hated jungle but they loved the impact of the bass because <laughs> the bass was so loud and um, and sure enough, like you know, so I was going there for about two years, um, and then you know, then like I say, this artist he sent my tune in. My next tune, he said, your next tune is going to go to this big label that you were, you know, that I was such a fan of. Next thing, I get a phone call from the label owner, a guy called Clayton, who's very notorious in the in the you know drum basing. Yeah, it's Clayton. <laughs> <laughs> I knew exactly who it was. Then all of that, what I was saying about daydreaming, I uh, got a record deal. And that's oh it. My, my God, life yeah. changed overnight. Suddenly, I went from being unemployed and just doing nothing, or you know, and just chipping away, working at these studios for free, and chipping away at this record shop, and living in the worst house you could ever imagine. Overnight, suddenly, I was like getting flown all over the world, playing all these gigs. And within about six months, I was like, I was nominated like best newcomer producer in the in the sort of like national or international drum and bass awards. And this label was that already Renegade Hardware? Then? That's Renegade yeah. Hardware. Yeah, that's the you know very at the time it was like the label. You know, it was a very dark, mysterious label because, like I say, the owner was quite hostile, had a big, had a very dark reputation, uh, and that just made people want to be on it more. You know, and it was the club that had the residency at the End Club. So, within this period of two months, well, for two years, I was a raver at this club. Then in this transition period of two months, I went from just being a raver at the back, being completely awestruck and living out this this place. Next minute, I'm playing there. This is incredible, <laughs> I was, yeah. Just trying to pin, I just still, I couldn't believe it, you know, because this place was everything to me. Um, that's kind of how it all started, really. And then obviously, you know, that developed into the career that I was known, that then I was known as Raiden. The funny thing about the Raiden thing is when that I got that phone call from Clayton at Renegade Hardware, he phoned me. And he said, right, you've got one hour, you need a DJ name. Because I was just going <laughs> under my own name. And I had one hour to think of a name. But yeah, that was the initial things happening, you know. It was literally from nothing to that. In, yeah. in a, and that probably took about three years. What stands out for me is that you didn't really try hard to get on that label. You didn't constantly send promos and no. desperately wanted to get in touch with people. No. It feels like you were just focusing on creating amazing stuff and then... 
A lot of people in that situation would say it was pure luck that you ended up there, but I don't think so. I think you surrounded yourself with the right people at the right time and you produce the right thing in that moment. Yeah. And all of these things that come together, I don't see oh, that totally. as luck. I see that as something you actually worked a lot for. I mean, you spent two years in unemployment, basically going for that. And, and you this think, is a you know, pretty tough thing to do. I mean, I was hanging out at those nights all the time. You know, that night, that night was uh, every two months. So I would go to that night and become inspired. You know, I lived for that particular, and I was young, you know, I lived for that event. So I was taking all the influences that I would get from that particular night and then go home and produce music. So mm -hmm. I suppose there is a connection, you know, because that was the night, that was the label, the identity, the sound that I was into. So I went home and created that you know and that obviously through other channels of me working hard of like you know working free in the studio at some point there is a whole nother avenue to this but i won't go there because it's just a bit, you know a bit mm -hmm. boring but effectively at another night i gave a demo i actually handed a physical demo to another renegade harder artist yeah not realizing that actually well I'm, you know we know this now but they talk yeah <laughs> so when this guy said all oh, right this artist gave me a demo it was actually really good all oh, right i know who you're talking about and that's when that other artist asked ah. me for the demo so it was like a snowball effect yeah um but i mean i suppose there was work to it because i lived out i was living out a fantasy i suppose i just didn't expect the differences i didn't expect that reality uh, that fantasy to become a reality ah. um and what was life like in the peak of your Raiden career. I mean, you were kind of climbing up the ladder of drum and bass artists there. You were flying all over the world. How did that feel? And how was the whole, also the money thing? I mean, back in the day, there was still like record sales were up and so on. So it must have been a totally different world from now. Yeah, completely different to today. I mean, I'll be honest, I still feel a bit stuck in that world, really. I haven't really, the modern world, I haven't really quite got my head around. I still kind of work on that old style so that the peak of it would have been sort of between 2004 and say 2010 i would say 2011 mm -hmm. was the that was i mean that's a long that's quite a long time to be sort of you know doing really well um i think i just took it for granted if i'm honest with you yeah. um um but it was amazing every single weekend i was in two different countries and it was not just europe you know i was going to like Australia, South Africa, you know, Israel, America, Canada, South America, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, you know, and I was going to weird places as well. I was going to Russia a lot because I lived in Estonia at this point, you know, um, mm -hmm. I decided that because I grew up in um, I grew up in a town on the south coast of England called Portsmouth, which is about 60 miles south from London. So it's not far from London, but it's not London. It's just outside on the coast. And it's not a very nice place to be. It's yeah. not. It's not bad. It's just. It's just boring. You know. There's nothing going on there. And when you get your opportunity to leave, you do. You know. Like, I was. You know. I was brought up there, and I'd never seen much of the world. You know. I come from a very sort of working class background, and then all of a sudden, it, it, in just a, a click of a, you know, cliff of finger, I'm suddenly traveling the world seeing things that people where i'm from never go and never get to see and it's one thing going on holiday somewhere for two weeks once a year but this is every weekend you know one weekend i remember flying from south africa to japan and then wow. back home and then i started getting the weirder places like russia you know kazakhstan you know i went to some weird places i love those places you know so it was it completely and then when i'd go back home to portsmouth i didn't relate to it anymore you know i'd seen things that i'd never thought I'd see before and then that's why I moved first I moved to Amsterdam no sorry I moved to America staying with my friend but I couldn't really stay there legally or didn't have a proper visa mm -hmm. so I moved to Amsterdam I was there for about a year but I didn't really get on with it very well 
Uh, and then an opportunity came up to live in Estonia. And uh, I'm always the sort of person I don't really like, even though you had this big drum and bass scene in London, I sort of pride myself on being a bit different. Like, yeah. I don't have to be there. I can be completely out on my own. Um, so I just, uh, and I did a tour in Russia and the Baltics and I saw the rent prices and I was really struggling to find somewhere to live in Amsterdam. And, and someone basically offered to move my stuff for 300 euros in a, in a you know, in an articulated lorry. Let's do it. <laughs> wow. Also, I've got nothing to lose. Next meeting, I'm in Tallinn, Estonia, and that ended up being eight years. And that eight-year period was definitely the hiatus of my career. So I was living in a country that had, like, ins- it was insanely cheap to live there, earning British DJ wages. I was living like a, you know, I was living really well. I didn't have the stress of life, you know. I didn't have the stress of bills, which made me really creative, because I didn't have all this other stuff going on. Yeah. You know, I didn't need a job. And it's probably one of the most creative times of my life, actually, which uh, at that that point. When you were at the peak of your career, and I, it kind of sounds like this was the absolute peak of the Raiden time. Yeah. Were you afraid of losing that status? I'd be honest with you, I thought it was going to last forever. I thought, this is it. This is, you know, like, it's it's unstoppable, you know. Like, you reach such a level, you think it's always going to be this way. Um, And you know what? It could have been, actually, if I hadn't changed. (laughs) Yeah. This is actually the the next part that I'd like to get to. Mm. How did the whole career shift happen for you? What was the thinking behind that? Um, One part of me, like, I've always always really respected producers who are capable of doing many things. You know, to me, that's a producer. Someone who can just write the same tune or the same genre over and over again. Uh, It didn't, to me, didn't feel like... I don't know, it didn't sell anything to be celebrated. Anyone can just do one thing all the time. And I was getting really bored of the music as well. Like, things were starting to change in the, in the music scene. Um, or maybe I started to change, or maybe a combination of the two. But something mm-hmm. wasn't right. I did a tour in America, basically. And I just suddenly didn't... F- I didn't feel... I didn't feel attached to it anymore. I didn't feel like it was me. I felt like it was someone out there being somebody that I, other people wanted me to be. So just something changed and suddenly I just wanted to do different music. I wanted to experiment a little bit more. And also the scene was getting quite like judgmental. Or is that, I don't know if that's the right word, but they were they're being very, they expected things from you. They wanted this and this and this and they wouldn't let you have any manoeuvre. And I started to feel suffocated, like I was living inside a regime, which made, made me want to escape. I didn't mm. know where I wanted to escape to but I had to escape. And everyone around me at the time said, you're crazy, like, you've got this really good career, you're doing really well, you you know, financially you're doing well. You've got, like, three, you know, I had two record labels at the time, which uh, one of which was very successful. Um, which one was that? It was called, there was Off-Key. There was the Off-Key one. Yeah, yeah, and I had this other label as well called Voodoo, which, funnily enough, I did a tour in South America. Nice. And that's where the decay started to set, set in, because I was like got exposed to all these South American influences of drumming and I wanted to incorporate that into my music but what happened is it alienated me my old fans didn't like it because it was not heavy enough but the people who would like it already typecasted me with the heavy stuff so they didn't like it Mm -hmm. so I suddenly found myself in this limbo and I remember the distributor was saying look this is really good music that you're doing but it's you're you're pushing it to the wrong audience if you go multi-tempo you will, uh, these audiences totally understand what you do. And he goes, and if you go multi-tempo, you're opening yourself up to a huge range of different musical ideas. You can, you're not restricted to just working between 170 and 175, like BPM. 
And so I did exactly that. I literally just stopped overnight. I still continued to do the gigs, even though I wasn't enjoying them very much. But, um, but creatively, it felt the right thing to do. So it's like mentally breaking up with your partner, but not committing to it? Yeah, it's like <laughs> mentally breaking up with yourself. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So there was this, yeah. So I spent like two years effectively going out playing what I used to play, not enjoying it. But then when I was at home, I was working. I've never worked so hard, you know, well... There's been certain periods where I've worked extremely hard and this was one of those periods. I wrote probably like 40, 50 tracks and they were all terrible. I mean, and that's quite a hard hard thing to do because you've just come from something where you're regarded as some, you regarded, you know, someone good. You had a lot to lose. Yeah, and then suddenly, like, even you know yourself, you're actually writing really bad music because I don't know how to write this music. When people say that just if you can make X music, you can make this, it's not true. You know, it's, you have to relearn everything again. It was like learning a brand new language from, from scratch. But again, you know, spent two years and sure enough, it started coming together. And then the interest started coming in. But the big difference um, from Raiden to, say, Kamikaze Space Program was Raiden, everything fell in my lap. And I, you know, and I realized how much I took that for granted. Whereas with KSP, I've had to work hard, and you know I had to put, you know if I put ten if I put ten in, I get five back. Uh, whereas Raiden was the opposite. Like you were saying about the luck thing, maybe you were right. Maybe there was an element of luck, and with KSP, it wasn't luck. It was actually hard work. I don't know. I think there was element, maybe a bit of both. Yeah, I, you know I'm, what I mean? I'm not a friend of the luck concept by any no, means. I always I think it comes from something. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if it's unconscious, it's mm. just about you focusing your energy. Uh, and being passionate about something. Yeah, absolutely. No. So just to understand that, was it, speaking in DJ terms, kind of a crossfade between the two careers? Or yeah. did you um, like publicly announce that Raiden's gone now, this is Kamikaze's publicly, space program Publicly, it, it was definitely a crossfade. Mentally, it was a complete cliff edge. You know, okay. I even remember the very moment I decided I was done with it. I was in a hotel room in Atlanta, um, in, you know, in America, about to play a gig. And uh, I literally just went, hmm not really sure about this anymore and then my next gig was in Portland, Oregon and I hooked up with a friend who was called uh, SPL and he'd already kind of he'd already started to kind of widen his creative palette and uh, he really you know and I had a chat with him about it because I had a weird one the other night I felt like I didn't want to do this anymore like because the tour that I did was exactly the same tour that I did the year before in the same order to the same people I actually mentally in my head with the memories I can't separate them because yeah. it was literally like the identical tour in the same order I think that's what did it. And my friend was just like, yeah, no, go and do it. I believe in you. You can do this. And when I got home, I never wrote another Raiden tune ever again. And still haven't to this day. And at some point, you must have stopped playing also as Raiden. That's only just kind of happened in the last year or two. Oh, really? Yeah, since moving that. to Berlin, actually. I think moving to Berlin was the, was the watershed. Like once, so basically, I lived in Estonia and then financially the Euro came in. And I decided to switch careers. That was like a double well, uh, a double hit, you know. So all of a sudden the gigs, I was getting gigs, but they weren't quite as regular. And um, the Euro came in, so everything doubled in price overnight, you know. Um, so I basically moved back to the UK and I moved to Bristol. Uh, and I was there for four years. And that's where things were really tough when I lived in Bristol. Um, because, you know, that's when everything was like the ra the KSP thing hadn't really kicked in yet. The Raiden thing was completely on the descent and I basically fell into teaching. 
that's how I started to teach. Like a friend, all my friends who are a social group, most of them were teachers, and that kind of gave me an in to a mm-hmm. local college. I went in and did a guest lecture once, and then next minute the guest, the college is going, look, someone's sick, can you come in? And at the point where I could financially, 100% financially rely on KSP to live from, that's when I moved to Berlin. Oh, okay. Because I was it. coming here anyway to play gigs constantly. I'd already been playing in Berghain uh, through the loop, you know, because basically just to backtrack, what happened in the middle of the time I was in Bristol, I was just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at this KSP thing. And I was, again, just at the point of giving up, mm-hmm. just at the point of like becoming exhausted and going, right, this is just a hobby. You know, it's probably not going to be quite the heyday that it was before. I get an email, well, a message on SoundCloud from Luke Slater saying, I've heard your music, I love it, Um, I want to sign an EP, Uh, can you get something to me in one week? If you can give me something in a week, you'll be the next release on Motorvolver. Did you ever find out how Luke Slater kind of (laughs) got interested in you or how did he He find out? He was just browsing SoundCloud apparently and he just came across it. It was that that simple. Incredible. And once again, people could say, well, that's just lucky. I mean, nobody's stumbling over my SoundCloud, so that's probably yeah. the reason why. But no, I think that but always... stood out to him. You exactly, know? something stood out. And also probably some people already have been liking it, sharing it and so on, that were super yeah, into it, that were in his circles. And so he probably got forwarded to that in like some I'm way or another. I'm always trying to... F- when it comes to music, I always want to sound like me. You know, I'm not saying that's good or, you know... I'm sure if I tried to sound like everyone else, I could probably make even better music. But for me, sounding individual is really important, and I think that's just down to the that's just down to the influences of the people that I like. The people that I really like sound completely like the moment the first part of their their song starts. I know who it is, and I always respected that, and I always wanted to have that as well. And I think that's been I think that's been behind a lot of the success that I've had is that you can always you know I don't know if it's arrogant to say, but like I always feel that you can identify my music no matter what I do you always know that it's one of mine and I think that's what stood out to Luke you know it was very individual yeah I completely agree with that and honestly even in the kind of mixing thing which is mixing and mastering which is the main part of my career a lot of people just hire me because of a certain sound that they hear in the releases that I put out yeah and I enjoy I enjoy working with them way more because they know that this is the last ingredient that's probably missing in their production yeah Yeah. and you definitely have a sound as well like when I hear like your production there's definitely a vibe to it I can hear it like I could if you played me one of your mixes I know it's one of your mixes like you have this incredible like hi-fi it's it's weird your, your sound's almost like transparent but it's it's also kind of characterful at the same time <laughs> it's funny you say that I, I don't I have a really hard time describing it actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's funny I couldn't do it any other way and I'm I'm thankful for that because I think it's very hard to stand out with that so let's probably dive a little bit into the whole um, building and growing your career topic which is yeah. kind of the f- yeah the main thing of this podcast and If Chris Jarman would start out fresh in 2019 and let's say you're his mentor, what's the number one advice you would give him now? I've been trying to ponder this question since you told me earlier. Because the thing is, would I have got where I've got now if I hadn't have made all those mistakes? If I hadn't made those mistakes, maybe I wouldn't have learned those lessons. And that's why I just keep thinking it's really hard to give myself advice. And I've changed so much. At what point would I intersect? I think there's a few little places where I've made some mistakes. Like I wish that I was a little bit more on top of like my paperwork. 
in terms of like publishing and all that kind of stuff. But then would I have been as creative? I've been around a lot of producers who are very on top of their that sort of stuff, but they're not the most creative people. Um, it's, it's very rare that you get someone who's like super amazing at every aspect of their career. Mm. Like the bit that has always been for me is my creativity, I suppose. You know, the risk of ideas. But what did I tell myself? It's, oh, it's really difficult. I really don't have an answer. Yeah, it's also a very open-ended question. What yeah. stands out to me as a like somebody watching from the outside is that you're one of the few people who managed to reinvent themselves like several times in their like career. Three times now. Yeah, yeah. and that's that's Fourth quite time amazing. Now, actually, yeah. um, that's purely down to like one me getting bored. I, I think when you've got a concept or an idea, we always have a story or a narrative in our head. It could just be like, I'm going to make music from spoons or I've got a, I've got a life story to tell, you know, it doesn't, but, um, but every story has a beginning, a middle of an end. And I kind of feel like with making music, it's exactly the same. And I, I seem to be able to recognize when something's run its course. And if I'm not doing anything new, then what's the point? And how am I going to flesh out a career, just keep making the same thing over and over again? I think the reinvention is what's helped me stay relevant for so long. Uh, if I hadn't have changed, I would still be writing, still trying to write acoustic guitar tracks. I might have been Ed Sheeran or something. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's like, I think uh, reinvention is really important because things change. Um, the thing is, I'm not changing because this, because of a, a musical scene is telling me to change. I'm changing because I personally want to change. I don't care if the thing I'm moving into is fashionable or unfashionable. It's just that's where my heart is. That's where my passion is. Everything's done through passion. So I'd probably... In terms of, you know, I think in some ways, I know it sounds kind of weird, but I, I'm kind of happy with the way things have gone. Obviously, um, I would like to have been a lot more financially better off. Like the decisions that I've made doesn't enable me nowadays to live as a 40 year old. I'm not living, you know, I have to have a job to sustain a lifestyle of someone of my age, you know. Um, I couldn't live purely from the music, but the, my, but the creativity is what means something to me. And at the same time, teaching music is also living from the music in some way. I mean, you're giving yeah. back to the scene that yeah. gave so much to you. So that's absolutely, I think it's a completely valid concept. Um, it's not like you're working in a supermarket. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, I'm sort of working in one of the you know most interesting music schools in Europe. In terms of advice, I'm really, yeah, I don't know if I would have done anything differently. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I was, to, I was speaking to you earlier about the fact that when I was on Renegade Hardware, Many of us have all gone off in different directions. You know, some have stayed doing exactly the same thing. Um, some of them went off to become extremely famous artists. I definitely chose the more avant-garde, arty kind of route. You know, it yeah. was kind of made me laugh when I switched over. People said, "Oh, you've sold out." But it's like, how can I sell out going to a music that's even more niche than the thing that I've just, <laughs> <laughs> I've just walked away from? How can that be selling out? Yeah. I mean, And then I. This other guy that you told me about went into mainstream EDM, which is a yeah. whole different beast. Yeah. yeah, he became like a multi, I think like a multi-millionaire in the space of about two years. Mm. But fast forward another five years, this person's desperately trying to come back into the sort of underground music scene. But because he'd done this other stuff, no one wants to know. And he's now painted into a corner and he's effectively over. Um, and, you know, he just, it just burnt out really quick. And like you, like you were saying, who's really the winners or losers in this situation? At the end of the day, the only thing that you have is what you take with you. You know, when this is all over, what you've created is your legacy. Exactly. And for me, that's never for sale. You know, that's, that's priceless. Even if I'm completely broke, at least I've got some integrity with my catalog. That means, that means the world to me. 
I think that reinvention is a good thing to do, you know, know when something's run its course and don't be afraid to take risks. Like whenever I take, and I've, this has been multiple times now, every time I take a huge risk, and especially if I have people around me going, you're mad, you're crazy, what are you doing? You're, you're like, you're really going to screw this up. Like, just, <laughs> just calm down, you know, don't go there. That's the time things go really well, when I take that massive risk. And when I stagnate and don't do... I don't try to push the envelope or just or take a huge risk or make a new alias or try something new. That's when everything's rubbish. I always get success. But the thing is, you have to go through that really bad point first. You have to go through a little bit of pain before it gets good. And then, funnily enough, the same people are going, oh, well, they're the people who tell you you're lucky. <laughs> it's those people who tell you you're mad. What are you doing? Like, you shouldn't do that. That's way too... Uh, You've got something good. Don't ruin it. They're the same people who turn around and tell you five years later, oh, you're really lucky. Absolutely. I actually committed to throwing myself into new and cold water um, with something really big every year. So um, this year, for example, the, the yeah. podcast is the best example, honestly, yeah. because that is something that I haven't done before. It's something where I didn't know if I can pull it off. And now it's happening. I'm super proud of it, but I was scared as hell of yeah. doing that and actually asking people if they want to come here, thinking about all the reactions online of what people would think. And to be honest, um, in the end, if you overcome these critical thresholds, yeah. that's when you enable yourself to grow massively. And, you know, I think it is, it's just hard work. When these things, when you're going through a time when you really want to change something, you can either sit around and do nothing and think about it, or you could do something about it. And you might surprise yourself, you know, that's at least how it's been for me. It's, it's like, just put the work in. I will get lazy as I get, if I'm not into something, I get really lazy. Yep. But if I'm really into something, it's not work, it's passion, you know, and I just do it. I can't help but do it. But it is ultimately it's hard work, isn't it? You you it make is, a sacrifice yeah. and you just work hard. And, and when something bad happens, you just brush it off. You know, it's annoying, it's a little setback, but it doesn't it doesn't stop you pushing ahead. Yeah, and the thing about hard, deliberate work and practice, that's also the thing that most people are avoiding at some point. And Only the fact that you're doing something as hard as, for example, writing an album or creating a new podcast or whatever it is that is a hard thing to do creatively and also work-wise, that sets you apart. Only the fact that you're powering through and that you're yeah. actually committing to something big. Yeah, and and I think sometimes, and I think we're all guilty of this, doesn't matter who you are, but like me, myself, I'm a total perfectionist when it comes to music. I wish I was a perfectionist in other areas of my life, but but music, I'm definitely a perfectionist, to the point that it's quite damaging. Yeah, but um, it is for most people that struggle yeah, with that, yeah. You create, I think sometimes we get scared of doing things because you once you actually do it, it's reality. And all the faults, when it's in your head as a concept, it's the best thing ever. But once you actually create it, it may not be quite as good as you once it be, yeah. but you have to accept that. It can be super frustrating at times. Yeah, but you know, but I think just ha having something, the the feeling of accomplishment in itself, regardless of whether you did it perfectly or not, is 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 that's amazing. You yeah, know? you can look back at something that was really hard to achieve, and that um, helps you to grow and also to learn from it. Yeah. Next time you're facing a critical decision or something that's really hard to power through, you remind yourself of the last period when that happened. And you just realize you've learned so much in that time yeah. that it's actually worth going through that totally. period. Yeah. And the things which seemed really bad at the time end up sometimes like something really bad, something bad, what you feel like is say, a, like a, what do you call it? Like a hitch or a kind of 
trying to find the word. When something bad happens, at the time you think this is such a disaster, but when you look back on it, if that disaster never happened, it, you've probably uh, something amazing happened through that disaster. Exactly. So this is it for the first part of my interview with Christopher Jarman, aka Kamikaze Space Program. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, because honestly, this conversation was something very special, simply because we can learn so much from what Chris has shared about his upbringing in the electronic music scene, how he got started, how he got discovered and developed as an artist, and also how he transitioned from one period of his career into another one. That is super interesting and I can't wait to share with you the next episode. This is going to be part two of our interview. It's going to air next week, same time. So stick around for that. I hope I see you again. And if this interview has motivated you to put even more work into your music career, then I have something for you. It's a completely free resource called The Seven Strategies of Highly Successful Electronic Music Artists. It's a PDF where I'm outlining the strategies that my most successful studio clients use in order to build and grow their electronic music careers. And I'm sharing this with you for free. So just go to pickyourselfpodcast.com slash free to download the PDF. And I hope you enjoy it. See you next time. If you have enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And you can find show notes to this episode in form of a detailed blog post at pickyourselfpodcast.com. Until then, see you next time. <laughs>